Hey everybody, this is our second episode this week, as you will know, and typically these are available for patrons only. But this week we decided to make our second episode available to the public. We're going to be talking about Bolsonaro and the rise of authoritarian neoliberalism in Brazil, and it's going to be really important that international solidarity rise to the occasion in order to stave off the worst impacts of this situation. So this show is going to be brought to you by our patrons this week. Thanks again to all of our patrons for the support. We couldn't do it without you. And with that being said, we're expanding our funding pitch this month. We're encouraging folks to donate one hour's worth of their wage this month in order to keep our operations here at Dead Pundit Society running. We're in the midst of expanding our operations. We released our first video this week, which is a really exciting thing, even though as of right now, it's just clips of our episodes. But people should look out for far more content coming from us in the future. And again, we can't do it without you. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and fund the New Left Agenda. All right, on with the show. I just, I tried to connect, I connected to a different, I've got like two different Wi-Fi's on here. So I tried that. Um, I still see that some neighbor has got um, Bolsonaro 2018 as their Wi-Fi name and someone else has uh, Antonio Gramsci as their Wi-Fi name. So (laughs) (laughs) we've got a, we've got a culture war playing out. Exactly. Yeah. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. Oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me on the line is a very special guest. He is part of the podcast Host Brethren, the secret society that uh, we belong to. Writer and researcher based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He has pieces this past week in The Baffler and an op-ed for NBC. Alex Hockley, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Pleasure to have you. So you are the co-host and founder, if I'm not mistaken, of the Alf Hey Bunga Bunga podcast, which is a really fantastic show. If listeners out there have not heard of it, you definitely should check it out. Anyone who is in the DPS orbit who likes what we do here would thoroughly enjoy what you guys do over there. Give us a quick introduction about Alf Hey Bunga Bunga. How did it come about? Thanks, hon. And yeah. uh, what kind of topics do you guys cover over there? Yeah, so it's myself, and we set it up with uh, with George Hoare and Phil Cunliffe, my friends in London, and Ben Fogel has joined us recently. Uh, we kind of record from different places. So I'm based in Brazil. Two of the guys are based in the UK. Ben Fogel is based either in the US or, or here in Brazil. The basic idea of it is that it's the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. So that tells you two things. One is that it is we try to deal with different national country politics, which many other podcasts in English don't do, and try to give a real sort of thematic approach to them, looking at what is falling apart and what's emerging in its place. So that's the sort of end of the end of history bit that kind of our starting point is that the Western liberal democratic order, which structured most global politics uh, in the post-Cold War period, is falling apart, as we can all visibly see. And, you know, 2016 was the big year when everything's like, ah, everything's falling apart. And we're seeing the repercussions of that 
not just in Western societies, but maybe elsewhere as well, which I guess is something that we're going to come on to talk about today. So that's the basic, uh, that's the basic kind of thematic drive and also in terms of the subjects that we, we talk about. And we alternate between talking about national country politics, doing kind of more ideological or theoretical or kind of, you know, ideas, themes, and doing some cultural stuff as well. Yeah, and so you give uh, daily worship. You worship daily your Lord and Savior, Francis Fukuyama. Is that correct? <laughs> that, <laughs> that's right. I mean, it, well, I guess he's it's kind of like an inverted god, which is I think called the devil. And, and you know, I guess that's kind of a reference point. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a fallen lord of types. I mean, he's he's re, uh, resuscitated himself as the kind of like uh, anti identity politics guy lately, which is fucking bizarre, utterly bizarre. Mm. I don't see a left bone in that man's body. But anyway. We digress. Right, he's, he's, re- he's recently come out and said, you know, actually, maybe socialism, having a bit of socialism wouldn't be a bad thing. Of course, he didn't really mean socialism. He meant yeah. social democracy. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, you know what? That social democracy that used to exist, it's because there was a threat of socialism that kind of forced right, that right. to happen. And uh, yeah, you could maybe really think through that those ideas again, Francis. <laughs> the decline of socialism and real communism that you uh, celebrated in the early 90s. Uh, has precluded the possibility of having the kind of socialism that you are now advocating. Funny that. Funny. Which brings us to the topic of today's show, neoliberals unable to solve the problems that they themselves have spent the last two decades creating. (laughs) All right. So everybody knows by now, I mean, we're laughing, but it's an incredibly tragic and serious situation down there in Brazil where where you find yourself, Alex, in Sao Paulo. Tell us a little bit about the rise of Jair Bolsonaro and uh, as well as you could tell from the way that I'm butchering the Portuguese, give us gringos up here. That's probably not appropriate, is it? What's, what, what do you guys call uh, random uh, – You know, what do you call the crackers, the, the white boys, the Yankees? No, no, it's, gring, wait, it's gringos. It's it gringo, is gringos. gringos gring, to be honest, gringos just used for any foreigner basically. Ah. Which, so it's unlike Mexico where it has a specific meaning, specifically really Americans. Um, so gringos in this particular uh, instance is highly intersectional. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's ah. very welcoming to anyone who's not from Brazil, really. So yeah. good, good. So yeah, t- g- educate the gringos on some of the pronunciations here, because boy, I've seen some butchering going on here. It's Bolsonaro, Hadaji, yes, Hadaji, uh, nice, good. Hadaj, yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, go, his, fir- his first name is Jair, not Jair. Jair. Yeah, Jair Bolsonaro, and the the O drops off at times, if I'm not correct. Much like, say, like a French uh, sort of yeah, it's, well, it's Bolsonaro. Together. It ends up being Bolsonaro rather than Bolsonaro, like I as, see, you know, I see. as in the Italian original. I guess that's where his his family's originally from. Yeah. I see. Another name that I hear butchered, and this is we can start the backstory with this is uh, the former um, former leader of Brazil, Inácio Lula da Silva. Yeah, it's not da yeah, Silva. That's good. It's si- yeah, Silva. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Da Silva, yeah, but no, I mean, you know, it's all it's Lula to everyone, you know, whether you hate it's Lula, hate him or or, or yeah. love him, um, and there's many people who uh, feel both of those things, yeah. um, not simultaneously, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> society is split between those who hate him and love him. Let's to be clear. Although I would say a lot of people on the left spent the last two to three decades kind of in a love hate relationship with Lula in terms of understanding his his vast. Uh, you know, his popularity, his talent as a politician, the way that he's transformed that society, but at the same time, the limitations of his PT government that we're now seeing, uh, we're seeing this all come to fruition. And yet now is not the time to beat up on Lula. If you're a Marxist, my friends, now is the time to support him and his movement. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, he's in prison, so it's kind of I think this might be the the end to his political career. And, you know, I, I think I, I kind of say say this even to right wing people, and they're like, "What? How can you possibly?" But he is the greatest 
figure in Brazil's political history, or maybe the second greatest, uh, certainly the greatest since the Second World War. Um, and he also is someone who one shouldn't be too surprised by or feel like he has betrayed something because he has always been a moderate within uh, the trade union movement. You know, he was a guy who was very workerist in that regard. Uh, when he came up in the 70s through the, through the, you know, there was a real boom in industrialization centered in some greater Sao Paulo. And, you know, he was a guy who often was a moderating influence within the, within the trade unions. Um, so his form of politics, the way he engages is a form of conciliation, of building alliances. And that's something that he was very successful in doing. He built the Workers' Party, PT. I'm going to just say PT from here on in yeah, for your for listeners. Sure. Um, that's the Partido Trabajadores and yeah, my gringo correct, uh, yeah. inflection. No, that's good. That's good. That's that's a better job than most yeah. do. So. so I see you guys are learning how to pronounce things. You're learning a little bit of Portuguese. I mean, the important thing here is that you sound intelligent, not that you know what the fuck you're talking about. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can play it off that way. Yeah. Tell us about the PT, where it comes from, the kind of social base, how Lula played into that, and then take us up through Jilma. And did I get that right as well? Yeah, Dilma Rousseff. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's yeah good. I hear a lot of Dilma. It's not Dilma. It's kind of like a soft D, soft G. Yeah. It Is depends right? where you are in Brazil as well, mm. because uh, some people say Dilma, but others Interesting. Will say, the, the standard Portuguese is from Sao Paulo nowadays, and it's Dilma here. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, without going too deep into the history, because I think there's too much contemporary stuff to get on to. But, you know, so Lula, Lula manages to form this party of a novel type, the kind of last great social democratic party to be formed anywhere in the world, based in the trade unions, but drawing upon, and this is uh, during the military dictatorship, drawing on the support of radical Catholics, uh, liberation theology, of course, was a big thing at that time, drawing on social movements, uh, left intellectuals. And so it's a it's amalgamation of, a, a, of different forces, which create this party of a new type. Um, by the time the kind of 90s roll around, it's already a little bit more moderate. Uh, he loses presidential elections by quite little in 89. Uh, and then in 94. And by the time that the early 2000s roll around, and this is before the big commodities boom. You know, the, 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 the Brazilian economy had been stabilized under kind of neoliberal terms through the Plano Real, the, the Real plan um, to cut, you know, booming inflation, um, but which led to high unemployment as a consequence. Uh, Lula comes in and writes this famous letter to the Brazilian people, which is really a letter to the financial markets uh, saying, I'm going to play nice. I'm going to play by the rules of the constitution. I'm not going to be radical. Uh, I'm not going to confiscate anyone's property and so on. Um, so he comes in and, and, you know, this is something which one can look at kind of uh, center left leaders around the world. Whenever do we see center-left leaders promise to be moderate and then come in and be more radical? That, like, almost never happens. Yeah. Um, almost Chavez might be the only uh, the only exception to that rule. Um, so, you know, it's one of those lessons that you take that you should take people maybe at their word when they say they're going to be moderate. They're not going to come in and be secret radicals. Um, the party had already become moderated in itself. So anyway, he uh, Lula wins by a significant margin, uh, I think something like 60-40 in the second round in the 2002 presidential election. And, you know, it's a great hope. And it, But he actually is pretty moderate. You know, he, I think throughout his rule and indeed uh, Juma's two, one and a half presidencies, 
they maintain pretty orthodox macroeconomic management of the economy with some reform with some uh, redistributionary policies but already in 2005 there's a massive corruption scandal the big monthly payment scandal where it's a basic vote buying scandal and this um, really uh, made the scales drop from a lot of people's eyes because this was the PT was the ethical party, right? Especially yeah, for right. Um, the kind of lower middle class supporters of the party. This was a party who would come in and, and clean up politics. And instead, it, already it seemed to have been swallowed up by the machine that is Brazilian politics, which demands a lot of horse trading. It has corruption structurally built into it, um, mm-hmm. which I think we something we'll come back to because um, the whole anti-corruption discourse and movement is uh, a major factor in, in where we are today. Yeah, for sure. We want to cover that. I think that this um, anti-corruption has backfired on the left and the center left in a big way. And we want to spell that out for people because it's uh, it's it's a, I think it's a hot topic. In, it's a hot uh, potato. It's a hot potato. And I think liberal democracies across the globe, which I think we're, you know, we're sort of compelled in some senses to call out the blatant corruption that we see in our, our current leaders. Uh, but but that has some some blowback uh, potentially wrapped up inside of it. So we'll, we'll come back to that. So tell Absolutely. us about the fall of Lula, the rise of Jelma, and and um, and and where where that brings us today. Well, so his second term, he starts to try to accelerate the economy a little bit and increase jobs. He finishes his second term, you know, it's constitutional term limit in two thousand and ten, and he is unbelievably popular. The right, there's still sections of the right who, who, you know, who hate him, who always would hate him. But, you know, he has 80% approval ratings. He's feted all around the globe. I don't need to repeat all this stuff, I think, because your listeners will be familiar with it. He manages an unbelievable feat, which is to get uh, the unknown Juma Rousseff elected in 2010. He, she had been kind of prepped for, for, for two years, kind of building up her profile, but she had been the um, chief of staff for Lula and had never really had never won uh, a direct election before. She's someone who with a great deal of what's the way to put this fortitude, but is not a skilled politician. And so, you know, this was someone who had been tortured under the military dictatorship and withstood a huge amount of crap as soon as the the movement against her and the Workers' Party really ramped up. Some really horrible sexist things said about her. You know, she was during the 2014 World Cup. She turned up at stadiums, you know, and there were massive protests against her. You know, of course, the... Uh, audience, the audience. What am I saying? The crowd at that. <laughs> <laughs> the audience, the audience uh, at the sports balls <laughs> events. Uh, and that's terrible because I always take a, I always take the piss out of a friend of mine for saying things like that. Man, <laughs> uh, I'm never going to live that down if you ever listen to this. Um, anyway, so the crowds there, you know, booing and whistling, and this is obviously a much better better off crowds because tickets are super expensive. And she stands there and takes it, which is something that President Temer, uh, who was part of over, you know, was was her vice president and the her usurper never did because he always shied away from that. And, um, and you know, one can say probably that Bolsonaro is also more of a coward than uh, than Gilma was. So, you know, have a certain respect for her in that regard. That said, she starts following an increasingly neoliberal program, uh, implementing austerity, uh, which leads to unemployment ballooning and which loses her a lot of the PT's traditional base. One point I think is important to to mention, and I think it's really where, if you want to understand contemporary Brazil, this is where, this is your more pro- most proximate starting point, which is five years ago. It's June 2013. Maybe you'll remember the massive protests that exploded on the streets of Brazil, starting in Sao Paulo, but expanding to the rest of the Brazil, which were initially 
around a autonomous group demanding free transport. That gets heavily repressed by the police. A, a journalist gets shot in the eye, and then you know the, the mainstream media latches onto it, and the thing just grows and grows and grows. And that ballooned and it, in from a student protest as well, if I'm not mistaken. University yeah, I mean, it was, it, you know, it was a student kind of all, all sorts of things. Yeah, it was. A, we made autonomous groups, and then it, it it brings in all these other democratic demands, right? So. Anti-corruption was part of it, but it was also about better public services. It was about, you know, re-democratizing society. And it's a very inchoate sort of moment with a huge amount of energy, but with no direction and no one able to assume leadership of it. Already in the early days of it, by the end of June, by July, these protests start kicking out anyone with political banners, with flags and that. So there's this like, no parties, we're just individuals here. (laughs) In this regard, you know, the, there's similarities with like the Gezi Park protests in Turkey and, and, yeah. and so, so other ones. I think in Bulgaria, you had certain movements like that as well. And that should raise a red flag to anyone in the, on the left. Maybe not a red flag. That's not the right expression. <laughs> should, should bring an alarm. Because it should lower the red, the red flag for a lot of us, <laughs> exactly, I would say, yeah. in some sense. Lowering the red flag is a bad thing. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, th- this, should, this should bring alarm bells because it means that the, the sort of so, – supposedly post-political or non-party thing is always going to be right-wing. And over the course of 2014, by the time 2015 rolls around, you've got the protests having been channeled decidedly in a right-wing direction and focused narrowly on anti-corruption. And that anti- and the accusations of corruption mainly targeted the Workers' Party. The reason for this is obviously big, the big media and powerful interest in Brazil channeling it in that direction – but also because the massive Lava Jato anti-corruption probe really takes off in 2014. And by 2015 rolls around, huge swathes of Congress already stand accused and especially the Workers' Party uh, stand accused. The Workers' Party can rightly claim to have been persecuted to, and to still be persecuted by the Lava Jato investigation, while at the same time, it is not innocent. I think I, I think it's an absurd position to maintain that the Workers' Party is innocent in, in this um, whole scheme, that the, the massive kickback scheme, um, overbilling between the state-owned oil company, Petrobras, and contractors and builders, all that money slushing around, going into party coffers. This was a real thing and affected the whole political class. In fact, you know, Brazil is very corrupt, as I said, has corruption built into it as a mode of political uh, management. So, you know, all parties are guilty of this, but PT have been empowered by this point by, what is that, 12 years. And so there's going to be a natural sort of um, a natural sort of exhaustion that you get from being in government that long. But also you also have powerful interests who are like, all right, that's enough. That's enough of this. We've we've uh, played nice with PT. They've played nice with us. Uh, but that's it. Time to get them out. So the moment the centre-right loses in 2014, it decides we're going to get them out by fair means or foul. It latches on to the anti-corruption protest. By 2016, they've settled on impeachment. And that's, you know, the, the kind of right-wing anti-corruption protesters like to pat themselves on the back and say, we got Juma out of power. But you know, it's maneuvering in Congress that did this. It's a powerful interest. It's a big media and finance uh, siding against her. You know, there was an investment strike which really tanked the economy uh, at a time when the economy was already he- heading downhill off the back of 
Well, the the fall in commodities prices, the end of the commodities boom, as well as Juma's mismanagement of the economy, giving massive tax exonerations to big businesses, hoping they would invest. Instead, they just pocketed the money. Uh, and at the same time, as implementing austerity, withdrawing money from the economy, increasing unemployment. So it was a real whirlwind and a massive fuck up from the Workers' Party, as well as from, you know, as well as a, a deliberate campaign by the right to mount this soft coup, which um, I think it's important to state that... The best way to understand it is that it's a process rather than an event, and it doesn't really have a specific leader. It's something which is a, an almost sort of autonomous process uh, led by the right, but without any agent being able to take control of this coup process. Right. I think I think the, the parallel is often with Chile in 1973, but in, in, in 73, you have uh, this kind of catastrophic event on September 11th of all dates mm-hmm. uh, that we're all, all constantly reminded of uh, every anniversary of 9-11, and rightfully so. You know, and you have this dramatic scene of uh, the Chilean Air Force bombing, you know, the presidential palace and Allende going down in flames heroically inside. And, uh, and, and yet the Brazilian case gives us no such parallel in terms of a catastrophic date, a single event. It's more of a downward spiral into hell that mm. we're now reaping with the election of Bolsonaro. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it's, it makes it more difficult for, I think the global media sphere in particular, the mainstream media to digest exactly what has occurred over the past couple of years. So that's a really great, uh, that's a really great summary that brings us up to present where we can start talking about the rise of Bolsonaro. And I think a lot of people by now have that under their belt, but let's go back a little bit and talk about the material political economic forces that made this, uh, these these events possible that conditioned the crisis uh, in many senses what we're going to talk about in the last half of the interview which is this kind of discussion about like fascism and or neoliberal authoritarianism these are responses to a, a, a kind of global crisis and you've you've mentioned that in terms of the commodities boom and bust but let's talk about the bricks right let's talk about this kind of alternative global alignment that emerged in the noughties, if you will, the 90s and the aughts, uh, which comprised this kind of allegedly counter-hegemonic block uh, composed primarily of Brazil, uh, the fourth largest economy in the world. Is that correct? Is that, uh, it was the fifth. It was the fifth. It was, it, it was the fifth. My, my apologies. The fifth largest economy. So you've got Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa sort of leading the way there. Um, with a couple of other sort of uh, satellites that play pivotal roles in terms of commodity uh, production or mining or you know fit producing finished economies and that sort of thing. And China was booming during this period. Uh, Brazil's economy was benefiting from uh, the Chinese markets expanding in that in that process in, in a sense, a lot of the Chinese satellite states were producing kind of raw materials that were then finished in China and they were uh, having lucrative contracts. China was building ports, uh, highly investing highly in these economies, producing markets for those raw materials. And then at some point that all collapsed and China has sort of backed off of its role in terms of underwriting so directly, I would say, in terms of underwriting this kind of counter-hegemonic block in the BRICS. And the crisis that has ensued has swallowed up Brazil and many other countries as well. Uh, India, you see the rise of Modi with the collapse of their kind of accumulation strategy. And authoritarian neoliberalism has resulted. 
So that was a very long-winded way of talking about the mm. rise and fall of the BRICS. How has that particularly affected the Brazilian case here? Yeah, so Brazil is, you know, was part of this BRICS. I mean, now, <laughs> now it looks more like an ick. Uh, the only, you know, fast-growing <laughs> economies are India and China. Um, and yeah, Brazil had hitched its cart to, you know, the growing Chinese economy. Brazil exporting huge quantities of soy and beef. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that Pete's model of government, um, the, the basis on which it drew was, you know, on the one hand, the working class and then and the poor, but also it, it featured an alliance with domestic capital, right? So agribusiness being a big part of that, as well as construction companies. And that was, you know, that was the 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 kind of handshake that happened. And it, it was supported in Congress by parties loyal to those sections of capital. And, you know, in terms of international affairs, there was a lot of kind of South-South cooperation. But at the same time, you know, this was basically happening on on pretty capitalist grounds. Um, this alliance with domestic capital allowed, for example, the big construction companies, Oderbrecht, which is the one, the, big, the one which is most at the center of the corruption scandal, to reach its tentacles into Peru and, and Paraguay. And, you know, as a consequence, the anti-corruption investigation has uh, spiraled off into those places as well. So that's a, you know, that's a particular moment. And I, I think it's wrong to characterize Brazil's boom in that period, which is known as a, you know, the small miracle. There was a big miracle of 67 to 73 under the military dictatorship. Uh, and this was the, the little miracle under, under the workers party. But to say that it was just the commodities boom is incorrect because the Lula government made some specific decisions in terms of economic management, which uh, created a, a, you know, virtuous cycle. There was the Bolsa Familia conditional income transfer program, which, you know, took 40 million people out of poverty. It created a new class of consumers, the so-called new middle class, which is just to say workers, but who have ingress into a consumer economy. Most important, probably, is continually rising minimum wages, which, you know, you can look at charts on this. It's, it's quite dramatic and it sweeps up a huge amount of workers with it such that the, the, the gap between the minimum wage and the median wage shrinks to very, very little, Quite an, which is an interesting phenomenon. And this is a case where you have an economic growth, you have rising minimum wages, and you have, uh, you have lower unemployment, contrary to you know, neoliberal prescriptions, right? And that is a, that's a really significant thing. So far, the, the you know, minimum wage has been maintained uh, at the level that it is. And you know, it's a, it's a, it is a virtuous cycle, but it's also interesting that because there is no real structural reform uh, to the Brazilian economy, that it basically retains the same position within the international division of labor. That when the commodity prices fall, it isn't able to. Uh, you know, it hits the Brazilian economy, and its feedback effects through the Brazilian economy are very severe. Um, and so, Brazil remains a kind of you know a commodity exporter at the whims of the of international prices. And and so that's a big, you know, maybe the uh, one of the missed opportunities of the 2000s is that that Brazil wasn't really able to upskill, though on the positive side, it did create a big internal market um, of consumers, which which was a real kind of step change. As we're seeing now, that can be taken away pretty quickly. Right. And so in the you're, you're dropping some lingo that's kind of uh, somewhat jargony in the realm of international economic development, which is this idea that, uh, you know, countries that specialize in the production of certain raw materials or agriculture 
or what have you that have involved sort of low skill operations need to upskill their workers and their economic sectors in order to produce more finished goods to have a more kind of robust domestic economy such that these raw materials and agricultural products can be uh, processed and potentially even consumed inside of their domestic economy, which gives that that particular country a, a much larger expanse of capacities with respect to a democratic transition to socialism, for example. We saw that collapse in the wake of the Greek tragedy that played out several years ago with Syriza. And you know, you can't, you know, you can't run an economy on olive oil, unfortunately. And they had uh, you know, diversified their economy such that they didn't have a robust domestic economic sector in order to work with when it came time to attempt something like a democratic transition to socialism. And so in many senses, that was Lula's downfall, you might say, is that he had made peace with this accumulation strategy that removed a lot of the economic sovereignty from Brazilians' uh, hands and placed it into to the, the control of not only the Chinese, but also the vagaries of the global you know, political economic sphere. And it, it, it's, it's a certain kind of weakness um, to, to that, to that project that we saw that social democratic project that we saw emerge in the nineties and the aughts that we're now reaping in a sense. Is, is, is that essentially correct? Broadly speaking, I mean, there were certainly improvements in terms of Brazil's as theoretical ability to withstand these things by the creation of the new class of consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, also the fact that it paid off a lot of its foreign debt. So, you know, the right here loves to go on about, you know, the budgetary issues, the, the the scale of the debt, but a lot of that is internal debt. So, you know, that's something that isn't really such a big deal. And it ha- Brazil has massive dollar reserves. It paid off um, its IMF debts. So that l- left it in a much better position. I mean, this is, this is one of these ironies of it. Um, PT were great um, orthodox managers of the economy. They did a probably better job than the central right would have done. Of course, do they get thanks for that? Like, fuck they do. They get chucked out of office. Yeah, right, right. I guess that's that's a good lesson there, right? You can sort of walk on eggshells and play the game of the neoliberals, but they're, but you're always going to be just a fucking communist when it comes when it comes time to dispense with you uh, for the for the sake of pushing further to the right. So that I think that pushes us in in a really great direction here to talk about the rise of Bolsonaro and what he represents in terms of solving this crisis. In a way, uh, your baffler piece sort of. Uh, alludes to the fact that these centrists, these wishy-washy, gutless, spineless, bloodless <laughs> – what are the adjectives going to come up with? Uh, neoliberals who who sparked this coup, right, who sparked this crisis uh, are now reaping results that they themselves no longer control. So, yeah, I mean, I think the best way to think about this, because, you know, some of the terms have different resonances here versus abroad. In my Baffler piece, I try to use terms which will be evocative for for a foreign audience. Um, But I think the best way to think about this, if we talk about political parties, uh, the traditional center-right party, the the big one, because Brazil's got 35 different political parties. I mean, it's a complete mess, which is a whole other story. uh, And it's explains partly the kind of corruption because you need a lot of pork barrel spending and horse trading in Congress, which is something I'd like to get onto when we come on to talk about Bolsonaro, maybe prognoses of what his rule will look like, um, because that'll be one impediment to um, him being able to do whatever he wants through legal means. 
But uh, to, to backtrack a bit, so from you know, so the, there's a soft coup in 2016, which is led by the center right, thinking we can't take enough any more of this. Let's get them out. That, that's you know, that's a break with democratic norms. The Temer government that comes in is unbelievably unpopular, probably uh, registering the lowest approval ratings anywhere in the world in the history of polling. Um, I think dropped to the, as low as 2% approval rating. You know, it's a disaster. Fora Temer, right? Temer out becomes like the classic chant at any moment in time. You know, people will just shout it randomly in a bar, you know? Um <laughs> I, and I, man, I'm even nostalgic for those days because yeah, we thought yeah. Temer would fall at some point, uh, whether under the weight of popular protest or by uh, all the corruption allegations against him, which he's able to see off because he buys off all of Congress. So stops him uh, impeaching him. But, you know, you have a massive vacuum of authority in Brazilian politics. It's the the, the elite, especially, you know, the sections allied to financial capital the kind of more cosmopolitan center-right, they really lead this process. We're going to clean up the state, supposedly. You know, it's supposedly a renewal of the elite under the banner of anti-corruption, even though they're all corrupt themselves, of course. And they leave this massive authority vacuum, which allows for the rise of Bolsonaro, who is a guy who's been in Congress for 28 years. He's just finished his seventh term in Congress, but is able to present himself as an outsider in this context. And, you know, through quite authoritarian, violent rhetoric, uh, is able to draw a body of support to him. And so when the elections come around, he's able to basically colonize the whole center-right. All the people who traditionally vote center-right uh, in Brazil, the lower, you know, everyone from big business to, to small business, uh, independent middle classes, a huge swathe of that who used to vote for the center-right votes for the radical right instead. And people do that for different reasons. And I guess we can come on to a little bit later you know, who, what Bolsonaro support uh, is made up of, because it's a coalition of, of rather different um, ideological viewpoints and interests. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to state already at this stage, if we decide to call Bolsonaro a neo-fascist, his voters are not all neo-fascist. Indeed, only a minority of them are. Mm. Um, and that's an important mm. point to highlight. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, but it's, it's basically elites, neoliberal elites, uh, as well as the upper middle classes who are supposedly, you know, liberal, you know, uh, signed up to democracy, supposedly uh, moderates who at worst outright support Bolsonaro because he's seen as this new figure who can sweep things clean, motivated most of all by enchipechismo. And this is incredibly important to understand. Enchipechismo is loathing of the workers' party, and pechismo being related to PT, the workers' party. Uh, and it, so it's it's a hostility formally to the workers' party, but really is a hatred of the left as a whole. And it's really just a barely for, coded form of class loathing. Now, is this coded in a kind of culture war uh, ideology that you so, sometimes see in, in the United States? No, is, it's, I, it, is it's it more, more just a, traditional snobbery. It's more um, of a kind of an aristocratic uh, style of sort of naked loathing of yeah, the, and, the and lower li- classes. I mean, and is that right? So if we're talking, the, uh, there's different enchipachismos as well. But if we're talking about the enchipachismo of the upper middle class, of the urban urban upper middle class, well, not even urban, the rural upper, upper middle class as well, who see Pete as a gang who has come in and stolen their state and robbed everyone blind. Of course, you know, there was stealing going on. I mean, there was corruption. Actually, Pete were not the worst of them. And they 
in most cases, we're not personally corrupt. I mean, they didn't personally pocket money, unlike much of the right. But no matter, this is a gang who's come in and stolen the state. They hate Lula because Lula looks and sounds like a worker. They look like a guy. He sounds like a guy who should be fixing their car, not running their country. So, you know, there's there's very explicit class uh, loathing in there. And there's a racial element there as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there's a racial stratification broadly aligns with the economic stratification such that it does in the United States and, and most countries for that matter. The uh, economic and political elites in Brazil have traditionally more or less been very cosmopolitan and European uh, culturally, if, if I'm not mistaken, whereas you know the rise of the PT and, and Lula was sort of his vital part of his constituency was the kind of racialized uh, minorities in the hills, the former slave populations and so on. Is that is that correct? That's part of it. But I mean, the the Brazilian working class, the broad masses are very racially mixed. It depends where you are in the country. In the south, it's much whiter. Um, You know, Brazil officially is something like 50 4% 4% non-white, but the class, the classifications don't work at all like in the U.S. The U.S. has a history, the Brazil has a history of deliberate miscegenation, which is a kind of a whitening policy. But as a consequence, it didn't have the same notion of one drop um, of blood that you have in the U.S. Most people who are brown, by you know Brazilian terms, are, are not considered black. So, it, you know, it, it's very problematic to view the Brazilian racial context through the American one because they're quite different. That said, there still is a hell of a lot of racism, but because it was never carried out in as explicit a form as it was in the US, um, one can be mistaken in thinking that it's a racial democracy, which is a thing that Brazil likes to say about itself, but which is untrue. Um, So so somewhere in between, I think that one of the things that I sort of produced that uh, that question for was as a foil (laughs) and you took it brilliantly. Uh, I think like one of the things that the the U.S. left likes to do is take its own sort of racial historical context and then project it onto other countries. And so I was curious. I I think it's one of the worst, like most pernicious American influences abroad is the, the, the kind of exporting of an identity politics discourse or even just the categories that. American North Americans, uh, uh, residents of the U.S. use to understand their own society and exporting those and using those as lenses to understand other societies where it just does not map on. Right. I, I think, I mean, it, it may just be the discipline that I find myself in, but I talk uh, too much, I would say, about my academic uh, my academic life, which uh, I try to keep somewhat parallel or somewhat separate from the podcast, but I can't help but to bring it in. But yeah, I mean, almost ex- the only time I ever hear Brazil being discussed in an academic context, which let's be honest, um, really dominates the the rhetoric and the discourses of the U.S. left at, in Toto, right? Unfortunately, uh, the only time I hear Brazil mm-hmm. discussed is it's in its racial context, and it seems to me that there's a lot more going on here <laughs> uh, that's bubbling yeah. under the surface. And it's much more closely aligned with class than it is in the US. So that's basically, you know, it's more about class fundamentally. And entrepichismo, at least amongst the upper middle classes, is a form of class loathing uh, directed at the Workers' Party. And the Workers' Party is just seen as this taint on anything that it touches. Uh, just to give you an example, the second round runoff in Sao Paulo state, the largest and most richest, uh, largest in terms of population and richest state in the union, uh, was between a horrible scrotum of a man, uh, Jean Doria, who was once upon a time talked up as the possible, uh, basically the role that Bolsonaro played now, um, talked him up. He's like a 
he's like a rich, uh, rich guy from Sao Paulo who is a complete fake, completely superficial character. He really sums up the worst in Brazil. And he has completely followed Bolsonaro's coattails in this election. So he supposedly, he initially modeled, modeled himself as the manager, right? A kind of post-political manager who come in and clean things up and do things in a, in a, in a cool, modern way. He idolizes Michael Bloomberg. I was going to say, this sounds like a Michael Bloomberg figure in the he, U.S. Yeah, He is, um, what's the polite way to say this? <laughs> no, fuck it. Let's go uh, all uh, fuck out. Fuck it. Bro. I mean, he, he's, he's got his mouth full of Michael Bloomberg, basically. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he runs for, he becomes Sao Paulo mayor against Haddad, actually, in 2016, wins by a huge amount, uh, which was a major surprise. It didn't even go to a second round. Um, and he does this partly because the peripheries, the poor peripheries of Sao Paulo, who used to vote for the Workers' Party, vote for this guy, which is already a, a very important foreshadowing of the presidential election of this year. Anyway, so he makes it to the second round runoff for governor of Sao Paulo. A, this it, right now against a guy called Marcio França, who's of the PSB, which which is the um, the Brazilian Socialist Party. Except it's not socialist at all. Everybody knows it's not socialist at all. It is very much uh, the center in Brazilian politics. Uh, and he tries throughout the whole campaign to tag Marcio França of the PSB. He's a socialist. He once was at a dinner party with the PT. He once like was shaking hands with the Pechista. That gives you a, a sense of the of the way that in the anti-Pechista mind, PT is just this taint. It's this this somehow this uh, uh, in, ineffable evil <laughs> that that t that taints everything it touches. It sounds like the HUAC, uh, you know, phenomenon yeah. in the in the 1950s and 60s in, in in the U.S. You know, or 40s and 50s rather, more explicitly in the U.S. Like this Red Scare. Uh, have you? ever been are you now or have you ever been a communist do you know any have you ever been to a dinner party with one uh, do your ch do your children go to school with a child whose father is a communist yeah just this kind of taint that you're that that sticks to people who are involved in that moment um yeah that's that's a that's that's a long-term project of class warfare that, that in order to get us there right and and you know it, it it's something that is expressed not just amongst the elite or the upper middle class but of the broader section of the middle class and even, you know, workers, precaritized workers as a consequence of, you know, decades of, of, of propaganda, well, especially the past kind of five years of propaganda of pointing out that Pete is this um, impossibly corrupt, inherently corrupt organization, a band of thieves. Um, and so a lot of Brazilian politics came to be understood through the lens of corruption. So if your school, if your child's school um, doesn't have enough materials, it's because of corruption, because PT have stolen it. If there's long queues at the hospitals, which there are, it's because of corruption and because PT have brought in this corruption, which didn't used to exist somehow. I don't know. So, you know, if there's crime, it's because of corruption. So everything becomes interpreted through this lens of corruption, which doesn't, which makes politics lose all specificity. Policy doesn't matter anymore. Ideology doesn't matter anymore. It's, it becomes a very moralized discourse, um, which flattens all distinctions. And that's really problematic for a left, which wants to talk about program, which wants to talk about policy, which wants to talk about how we get from here to there. Uh, if, when a pechista stands up to talk, it's, well, you're just corrupt. We can't trust you at all. How do you overcome that? And, you know, this election very much showed that. So, yeah. Hey, credit to Brazil's left for actually, like, trying to talk about policy. 
which is more than you can say for the purported left of most advanced liberal democracies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least they're doing that right. But you can see the way that uh, the, 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 the specter of corruption was coded, uh, culturally, linguistically coded in a certain way to be tilted against the left in a way that I think the left foolishly thought. And, and your co-host on Alpha Bunga Bunga, Benjamin Fogel, uh, big ups to Benjamin, a uh, friend of the show, friend of ours. Uh, he 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 would have been on DPS alongside us, but he did this thing and went. He went on Chapo Trap House, which you know has an audience of like ten million people. And so I thought having him on here would be a little redundant uh, alongside you. So, uh, but in any case, he's contributed to this discussion. Uh, this idea that that the left needs to be very delicate when when talking about corruption because it's coded in a reactionary way in in, in, in the sense that you've already laid out. And I think we want to continue laying that out. Um, anyway, brief digression there. Yeah, I mean, the way that corruption came to be framed was that it is intimately linked to statism so that if you, for example, have a national development bank, which is pretty essential uh, for a semi-peripheral country to develop, you're going to be corrupt. So there's a kind of a libertarian-ish discourse where you need to reduce the size of the state. That's the only way that, you know, you're going to keep corruption out of politics. The way that it's framed is not that, you know, there's a kind of a neoliberal understanding of corruption, which differs from the classical understanding of corruption. Um, I've got an, an essay in Jacobin in 2016 uh, or 2017 explaining this um, in, in a little bit more depth, if, if your listeners care to check that out. Yeah, for sure. We'll put that up in the show notes. Excellent. Um, that there's the, the notion is that, you know, you have a, a, a pure Republican public sphere, which is interested in furthering the nation. Uh, and you have businesses which come in and contaminate this pure Republican public sphere. That's the classical notion of corruption. The neoliberal version is we need to reduce the state's role in the economy to stop state actors rent-seeking and allow business to get on with it, uh, to stop, especially in the semi-periphery, stop uh, governments like the Pitis uh, taking advantage of the capital, of, of foreign capital and extracting rent. So, you know, it's, it's instead of instead of protecting politics from business, you're protecting business from politics. Interesting. So in that in that framing, business becomes the neutral background on which business as usual, I guess, pun intended, uh, business as usual is enacted. Right. And so any kind of state intervention is seen as outsider corrupt influence. Is that, is that uh, essentially correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's and, you know, that's a, a notion of anti-corruption, which is more predominant amongst the upper middle classes, uh, the better educated and, and the elite. You know, this is not the more popular uh, anti-corruption, even if it's even if there's right wing popular anti-corruption discourses. Um, what I've just been describing is a little bit more of a of an elitized version of that, right? Uh, the popular anti-corruption one is is more, as I stated before, that if the pu- if the public sector isn't delivering the goods, if there's the public services are bad, it's because it's corrupt. It's because someone's stolen the money along the way, which is a much more anti-political notion. In that, uh, you know, we just can't trust politics. Basically, that they're all in it for themselves, and. Um, and it leads to a rejectionist approach where, you know, you see this in the election now, you had huge 
abstentions, despite the fact that voting is mandatory, the, a record number of uh, null and blank ballots this year as well, uh, and a lot of Bolsonaro's vote is anti-political in that regard as well, because it's this is a guy who has been in Congress for a long time and has never been corrupt, supposedly, and he rules with a strong fist and won't be easily corrupted. He's going to come in and sweep away all the old structures and maybe be authoritarian, but that's probably good because he won't get tangled up in the old democratic corruption. And that's the sort of anti-political kernel to some of Bolsonaro's support. Right. So there, there are, those are the parallels with Trump, I would say, that people are latching onto across the globe and in particular in the mainstream media. We've, we saw a swathe of really embarrassing and, and in some cases just savage. I think in the CBC oh, man. Uh, had a tweet about how, you know, people – uh, should look towards investing this, this you know bolsonaro's election could be great for the canadian economy uh, for example was one tweet that uh, went out to yeah and and the wall street journal calling bolsonaro like brazil's swamp drainer yeah um, he's going to come in and clean things up and not only not only justifying uh, trump's sort of hollow bullshit rhetoric but then sort of com- comparing a much more dangerous figure if you can believe it uh you know, to Trump, I think is is uh, is a real abomination that we want to sort of get to the bottom of here in the remainder of the episode in terms of uh, what, what Bolsonaro's Brazil is going to look like going forward. Actually, that brings me to an important distinction I think I would draw with with Trump, um, which is that part of Trump's popular appeal would be based on that notion of I'm going to drain the swamp. That applies a bit in Brazil to Bolsonaro, but I think it explains even less Bolsonaro support because it comes from the elite. If you look at how he grew in the polls, it was amongst the middle classes, the upper middle classes and the elite where he really gains traction initially. And, and you know, the media gives him an easy ride. And I think that explains much more his support, despite the fact that he was able to win over the vote of sections of the working class. You know, the, and, and I just want to repeat and something that I've written this is not a revolt of the lumpens. You know, there's this sort of liberal middle class prejudice that fascism is just, um, you know, it's, it's bad, badly educated poor people revolting and wanting a strong hand. And it's like, no, this comes from the top of society, not the bottom. I think a lot of people on the Marxist left, this kind of uh, overly – the people like me and us who, who we read a lot of dusty books, you know, and we're, we're kind of these heady theoretical Marxists. We have a, a good background in this stuff. Look to his discussion in the 18th Brumaire mm. where he talks about uh, Louis Napoleon's alliance with the lumpen elements and the sort of criminal underclasses uh, right, and his rise to power and his support base there as a kind of uh, way of understanding certain types of – fascist fascisms and right-wing populisms but uh this is i think where we might want to make a distinction between the fascisms of the past not only in the early uh or the the later 1800s but also uh, mid 20th century fascism with what alfredo sadfilo has called over the past couple or over the past decade or so of his writings his prolific writings he calls this authoritarian neoliberalism following in on some of the writings of my old man, uh, my, my, one of my theoretical faves, Nikos Poulansas, among many, many others. And so what's your take on that? Let's just zoom forward to that discussion. I think it, uh, we can pick that up quite fruitfully here. What is your distinction? How do you see it between the fascisms of the mid-20th century, say uh, Mussolini or Hitler as the most famous two examples, versus how it's manifesting today? 
not just with Trump, but more particularly with Bolsonaro, this kind of neoliberal authoritarianism, which is going to take on a lot of uh, sort of quasi-fascistic uh, aims and, 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 and goals when it's, you know, particularly it's savagery, I think that it promises. Yeah, I think let's start with the proviso that whatever fascism you have in the 21st century, it's going to be quite different from interwar fascism. And it is also not going to be Nazism because Nazism has even within studies of fascism, Nazism is understood as a particular beast, uh, which has all these kind of mythologies and other stuff associated with it, which makes it a particular brand of fascism. And it's too weird, even within fascism, which is hardly uh, totally coherent <laughs> as an edifice. Yeah, right, so, right. so you know, I think that's important to make that distinction. Any fascism we're talking about today would be a neo-fascism. Fascism, it would be a synthetic sort of element, uh, which would be particular to our times. It, you know, it wouldn't be just a repeat of that. Uh, however, we can identify essential features to fascism. Classical Marxist studies of fascism in- emphasize the way in which fascism is a means by the elite to crush the left and to resolve its own internal contradictions uh, that uh, have been created, thrown up by bourgeois society, by by market rule. Um, and in that regard, there are definite elements that we can identify in Bolsonaro uh, as, as neo-fascist. Everyone likes to talk about and this is something that I've you know, written about that I'd like to emphasize that we like to talk about the horrible things he says and has said, and they are horrible, but they do not tell us really uh, enough about structurally how he fits in and what his, what his program would be, what his proposals really are, what, how he sees power. Right. I think there's too much of an emphasis on the ideology, the kind of programmatic statements that he has made over the past 15 years versus uh, the kind of structural forces that he is marshalling and the kind of political project that he's likely to pursue now that he's in power. Mm-hmm. So uh, sp- spell that out for our audience a little bit. What do, you, what do you see him doing in the coming years? So he's not been in power. So we do, at the end of the day, have to rely on his words uh, in, 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 in a large measure because that's all we've got to go on other than looking at, you know, in class terms, what, what the composition is uh, of his base. So I think his base, let's start it there, I guess. His base is uh, kind of a, the lower middle class of, you know, small or middle class of small businessmen, um, independent professionals, and most important of all, in the armed forces and the repressive apparatus of the state, the police Basically, um, and you know, Brazil uh, still has a military police, which is distinct from the civil police. Uh, the military police, as you might expect, are far more repressive and violent than the civil police. And you know, in the special forces, it's u- basic universal support. Those are Bolsonaro's people, and that is another another important way to distinguish him from, for example, the military dictatorship of Brazil that he admires so much. Is that a lot of those military dictators were nationalist. They saw themselves, you know, they were they were a father figure who came in to put order in the house. Of course, they they stay there for twenty one years, um, but uh, <laughs> but they but they <laughs> so you know they they hung around a little bit too long. But they fundamentally saw themselves as they, they were very they were nationalists. They wanted to put order in the house. They repressed the left. They used torture as a necessary evil. Bolsonaro represents an extreme dissident tendency within the military establishment. So it isn't just him looking back to the military rule 
of 64 to 85 and saying, let's bring that back. He thinks the military dictatorship didn't go far enough. He said this. He says they should have killed 30,000 people. They should have killed Fernando Henrique Cardoso, Brazil's center-right president in the 90s. He says, when we come in, we're going to, you leftists, petralias, which is a, you know, kind of a, a term for, for, um, term for workers party supporters which is a neologism of like cartoon thieves i mean it's just so infantile at the same time it's also really scary that it's like hard to put that across um it's like calling the left the leftists in the u.s like hamburglers or something like that that's basically (laughs) it yeah that's it it's like um really it's so fucking childish but uh, but the the implications are horrifying in terms of what they what what they what they're prescribing there um but that childishness also allows a lot of those supporters in the middle class not to really realize what they're actually supporting i think um but uh but you know so so to come back to bolsonaro's extremism you know he says leftists we're gonna set we're gonna put you in jail or exile you if you don't you know submit to our laws uh we're gonna send you to the end of the beach which was a coded way of saying uh, or it was a coded way of referring to the naval academy at the end of the beach where they were in Rio where uh, leftists were sent to die during the military dictatorship. Uh, and he's and he's repeating this rhetoric, you know, even in interviews given, you know, very recently since he's been elected in the past two days. Uh, so this is not just something that is playing to his base, which he then plays a much more moderate figure when he's talking to a national or even a global audience. Um, he's maintained this sort of discourse. So it's that extremism and it's that base in the most repressive, violent aspects of the elements of the state, uh, you know, the, the police, special forces, the military police, that makes this very scary, that will make his rule, even in the best case scenario, extremely violent, because that street violence is going to be unleashed. I think this is important to to reiterate that even if he encounters difficulties in Congress, even if he is unable to change the Constitution and doesn't try to avail himself of more direct authoritarian means uh, by ushering in a soft military coup or even a hard military coup. Even if he does none of those things, there are many people who are going to be attacked and who will die because this is something that already happens to shocking degrees in Brazilian society. And this is going to be accelerated because Bolsonaro will give impetus to those people and he will also make it – he will also – make it unpunishable. Sorry, he will also um, bring in impunity for those forces who carry these things out. So in the countryside, landless peasant activists are killed all the time by farmers, by vigilantes. This is going to increase because they're going to have completely free reign. And it's in the countryside and in the Amazon. So people don't really see this. Uh, This doesn't make the nightly news necessarily. Um, In the cities as well, you know, the homeless workers movement are going to be repressed. Uh, They might be arrested. Uh, There's going to certainly the police are going to want to intimidate them. Uh, There was a piece that came out yesterday uh, from a guy who works within. He's a kind of attorney within the police saying that, you know, all the police the military police especially, what they're really looking forward to doing is not even going into favelas and shooting criminals because, you know, they also already do do that. They they massacre uh, criminals and innocents uh, pretty indiscriminately and Bolsonaro promises to give them carte blanche. But no, what they said is we want to go and be able to arrest, harass, shoot, you know, middle class pot smoking students and gays. And those are the people we want to really rough up. So 
I think that even if even if it isn't done by state forces and it's done by parastate forces like the militias, which already operate in 15 different states around Brazil and are particularly prominent prominent in Rio, um, just to talk a little bit more about these. They're generally made up of off-duty soldiers and police. Uh, they use threats and intimidation. So, you know, they're, they're sort of competing, paras- they're competing bodies to the drug traffickers and in many ways are, are far worse than the drug traffickers. The drug traffickers just want to ship their drugs and sell their drugs. Um, the uh, militias act as parastate organizations. Right. They clamp down on the left and uh, popular organizing and activism alike. So that leads me to this question. One of the horrifying images that came out of the UK over the past couple of weeks, at least to my mind, was British troops, British soldiers, if you will, British military men, swarming Stephen Yaxley Lennon, also known as famous wife beater Tommy Robinson, uh, founder of the English Defense League or former leader of the English Defense League, among other uh, dastardly organizations, these military men were swarming Tommy Robinson, trying to get a picture with him. They just seemed to be enthralled by him, uh, which shows that the British military has been radicalized in a rightward direction, at least sector segments of the British military. I'm not going to paint them with a broad brush to say they all love Tommy Robinson in the far right. But it's, it's certain that a fair amount of very young, uh, idealistic, uh, you know, soldiers have been pushed in a rightward direction over the course of the last decade or so. Um, what accounts for this shift in the Brazilian military? It is true that Bolsonaro was court-martialed um, for, uh, I don't know, some kind of a coup attempt. Maybe spell that out for us. Tell us about his sordid past as a military man himself and how he was once a radical, but the military has now shifted in his direction. How the hell has that happened? How has he become uh, on the far-right fringe of a military establishment that was already brutal? towards the left. Uh, how, how have we gotten here? Well, I think it's important to be clear that Bolsonaro is not, um, that the military top brass are not all Bolsonaristas. And they all, a lot of them don't necessarily want an active role in politics. They're the most trusted institution in Brazil now because of the, the collapse and legitimacy of all the other mm-hmm. ones. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that always the case? We saw that in Egypt as well. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, you know, th- that they're playing with fire there if they're going to take an active role in politics. Uh, they're going to have a greater role in security. They're, you know, Temer already... Uh, at the beginning of the year, sent the military to Rio. Um, and so the, the, they, the military take a big role in patrolling the streets in Rio. Um, but that's just one city, right? And so this is going to be something that's most likely going to be rolled out across uh, Brazil. But, you know, it's a big difference between taking a more active role in on-the-ground security and taking an active role in governing the state. Uh, and so there's still sections at the top brass, quite a lot of them who don't have any interest in that. Um, and so that's where, you know, the extremist versus nationalist distinction uh, really plays itself out. When I say the military, when he has a base in the military, uh, you know, that's Bolsonaro won 55% of the vote. So he's going to end up drawing a lot of, you know, military personnel, rank and file military personnel to vote for him just because that's, that's who are likely going to vote for him. You know, he, he, he puts forward an authoritarian agenda, it's not going to be entirely surprising that in a complete collapse of authority that people are going to go for that. And, you know, so if you have ordinary working class people voting for him, you know, you can be pretty sure military rank and file will as well. 
Right. And in a sense, you see the phenomenon that's similar, and I think it's going to be far more drastic in its results and its outcomes in Brazil. But it's very similar to what you see with Trump and the kind of uh, Blue Lives Matter, you know, uh, support our troops, the kind of right wing elements that have emerged in the post 9-11 war on quote unquote war on terror here in the U.S., where, you know, in the, in the Oval Office, you know, Trump uh, famously had at one point, I'm not sure if he still does, had uh, aligned an array of sheriff's badges that were presented to him by these right wing assholes across the, you know, in far flung places across the country. And, you know, he, he's he's loved by many military men in the U.S., men and women, despite the fact that he was a draft dodger during <laughs> Vietnam. Not that there's anything wrong with that, I should, I should emphasize. But nonetheless, uh, draft dodgers are not typically, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly not um, revered by military people in the U.S. And yet here he is kind of being this unlikely hero of that far right, at least culturally far right segment of society. Is that a, is there a similar kind of phenomenon taking place in Brazil with Bolsonaro? And, and and it's likely probably worse, I would guess. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it you know, already with the anti-corruption protests in 2015 and 2016, you always had a couple, a small section of those protests with people in military garb, uh, in camouflage, calling for military intervention now. Uh, and so you've always, you've always had that. You have this reactionary section of, of Brazilian population who look back to the to the military rule as a golden age of Brazil where there was no corruption things were in order um, things were socially conservative they call the coup of 1964 the revolution uh, which is a way of whitewashing it um, that's always existed but of course as things have become more and more chaotic and there's this vacuum of authority it's drawn more and more people into its orbit predominantly amongst you know the middle class who you know see as being part of, you know, the agents of disorder who were about to turn Brazil into Venezuela, right? <laughs> and, you know, if, if Venezuela didn't exist, they would have to invent it because it is it, it figures that great in the in the popular imagination that Pete were always going to turn Brazil into Cuba or Venezuela, despite the fact that they were in government for 13 years and did no, nothing of the sort and were absolutely centrist and moderate in their forms of rule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a kind of reheated Cold War paranoia, which really exists among certain sections of society, even amongst those who aren't in favor of military rule. Sections of the upper middle class will, you know, spout off that kind of stuff pretty easily. Um, so there's that sense of this weird sense of vulnerability from quite well off sections of society that, you know, society's out of control. We need a firm hand to come in and either take care of corruption, sweep away corruption, or in a much more violent ma manner, sweep away all the poor, sweep away all the leftists, sweep away all the intellectuals, you know, which is the real more kind of fascist image that you'd get. Right. So let's finish off the this chat by uh, sort of putting a pen in this distinction between the 20th century fascism versus the authoritarian neoliberalism that we're likely to see cropping up in the wake of the latest global economic and political crisis. And we're 15 years in to the global recession, which turned into a sovereign debt crisis, which has turned into a legitimacy crisis for neoliberal governments across the globe. And uh, what we're seeing here in Brazil and places in Europe and the United States itself and the Philippines uh, you, you, you mentioned off air that you've got a great Filipino uh, or Filipina rather 
scholar on Alfe Bunga Bunga lined up for this week or next week to talk about the rise of Duterte. Yep. Uh, I would encourage folks to listen in to, on that because that's uh, yet another manifestation. Um, that's something that's been going on for a long time across the world. As you also mentioned off air, uh, the rise of authoritarian neoliberalism is something that many nations have been dealing with for decades. It's only now in our, uh, in our national consciousness, our international consciousness, because we're potentially going to be reaping the consequences in the advanced liberal democratic world. But uh, so let's put a pen in this discussion. How should we view the latest manifestation of neoliberal authoritarianism? What are the social forces that can push back against this uh, this abomination? All right. So I mean, we're already you already have forty five percent of the electorate who reject Bolsonaro, who came out to vote for Haddad, who might not even like Pete, but decided to vote for him because they reject him not just on the on his policies which in fact we didn't even get to see what they were because he refused to attend any debates citing the fact that he got stabbed but he got the all clear from his doctors so you know he ran away from that he's kind of a, he's a, a, a remarkable coward for you know having this figure of as of a strong man authoritarian um he can't even do a push up there's videos of, of him online like the military guys <laughs> trying to do push ups and like man what a pussy like he can't even do a proper yeah. push up uh this is the strong man fuck Anyway, but um, so you do have already a a strong basis there to build on. Um, And, you know, I think there will be repression. And that's the worrying thing that, you know, Pete are likely to be Pete leaders. I think they're going to go after them uh, with legal means. Uh, They're going to try to get them all locked up. They're going to try to use whatever dirt they have on them uh, to put them in prison. So that does present a problem for uh, the leadership of the left, both in terms of PT as well as non-PT left, you know, the presidential candidate for PSOL, the Party of Socialism and Liberty, who is the leader of the the homeless workers movement, he himself also uh, will likely be the object of at least police harassment. And, and the, you know, they'll try to put him in prison as well um, on whatever trumped up charges they can. So that presents a real problem in terms of, of organization. Um, but, you know, there will be there will be mass protests against this. And Bolsonaro will be unpopular. I think one thing which maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about, but, you know, he has these very extreme neoliberal policies when he tries to implement these they're going to prove unpopular when he tries to pass pension reform, which the markets are absolutely insistent on. He's going to have a choice. If he follows that through, he's going to be prove himself to be unpopular and he's going to ex- have to expend a lot of political capital within Congress buying off votes to get that passed. So he's going to have to govern through corruption, despite the fact that he presents himself as the anti-corruption figure. So there's going to be chinks uh, in in his rule immediately, uh, things that can be exploited. Uh, the middle classes who voted for him as an anti-corruption figure will be dismayed by that. Uh, the working classes will be put off by his uh, neoliberal policies. And even sections of the, of the elite, if he decides not to implement what he says he's going to, uh, the, the most extreme neoliberal policies, the big neoliberal sell-off, a lot of the elite are going to break with him as well and think, well, he's not a guy who can carry see through our interests. Already, the big biggest media conglomerate, Globu, who cheerled all the big anti-Pete pro- protests, are being pretty skeptical of Bolsonaro. Folio de São Paulo, the widest circulation newspaper, who also were very anti-Pechista, uh, have been very defensive of press freedom, uh, have reacted strongly against his attacks on the, the newspaper because the newspaper uh, was the one to break this story about the, the fake news WhatsApp scandal. 
So there are elements there, even within the establishment, uh, which are not naturally on side with him. That said, when it comes to the Supreme Court, yeah, they might defend themselves, but the really striking thing is how much they have left the door open for him to take power. And that's really concerning. So in some, in an ironic sense, I think um, the biggest impediment to Bolsonaro's rule is precisely the worst things in Brazil, which is the fact that Congress is really corrupt and that he'll have to buy off votes and that will <laughs> and that will yeah. like taint him as a as an anti-corruption figure. This brings me to my final point here, I think, which is what people should be really concerned about. This is gonna really, I think, be the the edge on which we see things falling in one way or in, in one direction or the other, right? Which is whether we sort of see the maintenance of the basic sovereignty, the basic rule of law in scare quotes, insofar as we know that's oftentimes a sham, versus the total outright suspension of the law and uh, a, a kind of a kind of exception to the constitutional norms that have prevailed in this democratic experience uh, since the fall of the dictatorship in the eighties. And, you know, I think that's going to rise and fall around whether or not he's able to achieve these drastic arch right wing reforms through legal mechanisms versus extra legal mechanisms. And one of the things that he's promised to do is pack the Supreme Court uh, with in order to uh, kind of continue his, I don't know, his lurch rightward in Brazilian society. And uh, again, could we potentially see something like uh, the judiciary playing against Congress in that respect? Is that one way he could overcome the gridlock inside of Congress? Is it possible that he could align his base, who would otherwise be very upset with him, against the kind of uh, ruling elites in the mass media, the way that Trump has been able to do in the U.S., in order to accomplish sort of extra legal uh, you know, extra legal maneuvers in Congress or elsewhere in society. Um, what are the what are the likelihoods that he's really going to pull this off, and we're going to see some serious serious catastrophes in in Brazilian society on mass? I mean, we've you've already mentioned like it's just inevitable. Like the killings in the countryside are going to increase, and uh, the the killers are going to be uh, dealt with impunity. And uh, yeah. So, but in terms of the sort of mass totalitarian fascist hellscape that we saw in Pinochet's Chile, for example, what are the what are the likelihoods that we see something like that? I mean, the first thing is that the cultural stuff will definitely happen. And so, yesterday in an interview, he said that in a video that he put out that kids should film their teachers, their left wing teachers, if they're trying to indoctrinate them, and that send those videos out, and teachers will get a little surprise. That is really fucking frightening and really totalitarian sounding so that stuff is going to happen that's that that's an easy um an easy way for him um to please his supporters right um in terms of the big constitutional uh, issues in terms of uh, whether democracy is maintained in one form or another, I think, you know, I think, as I say, he's going to encounter difficulty in Congress. He has maybe 25% of Congress uh, backing him. He has another 20, another 25%, which is very much the kind of left-wing opposition. And then you've got a big mass in the center who's there to be bought off. But he will 
very possibly have recourse to pel- uh, to plebiscitary mechanisms to actually, you know, to hold referenda. Uh, the big thing he wants to get past is um, the right to bear arms. Uh, so that will just increase mm-hmm. the level of already existing violence in Brazilian society. Guns are expensive, by the way, you know, like, <laughs> it's only going to be his kind of right wing shock, his right wing middle class shock troops, who are going to be able to uh, go out and buy guns to supposedly protect themselves. But, um, you know, th- this, that sort of street violence is something that will be unleashed i think one way or another whether he manages to um subvert the constitution or not and you know if there is a significant degree of chaos and ungovernability i think it's very he always has a military waiting in the wings he's going to bring in the military into you know into ministerial positions but i think they will also be able to take a more active role in politics if there's a any sort of breakdown in public order also, if there's mass resistance, you know, if there are really mass protests and, this, and society becomes ungovernable, maybe the military decides then we need to step in and even take Bolsonaro out of the picture. So even if Bolsonaro is – even if we might say Bolsonaro himself is a fascist, I don't think, at least in the in the term of one year or two years, that it, Brazil is going to go fascist uh, necessarily, but that he might be someone who opens the door to – to fascism later on, which is um, really frightening. And one hopes that he encounters as much difficulty as possible in, you know, the, the first year of his rule. And I think if I can make a shout out, international solidarity will be very important in this, that he isn't able to get away with everything um, without the eyes of the world watching him. So, you know, if your listener can be able to pressure their elected representatives if you're a journalist or an academic, that'll be very important as well there, because there are already uh, increasing attacks on, on the free press. Bolsonaro is going to attack that. So as much international solidarity, whether in, in symbolic or monetary means, that'll be really important in the days going forward. I think that's exactly right. We need to make it impossible for our elected officials to uh, remain silent, much less support this man. He's going to be coming to the United States in the coming month or so. Um, he's claimed that his health is not uh, is holding him back i'm not quite sure if he can he he's, he always uses his health i mean what a strong man what a real <laughs> what a real tough guy right like he used his health to get out of the debates and now he's using his health to avoid the international scrutiny that he's bound to face when he travels to places like the united states the united kingdom and france um anyway is anybody surprised that the people who sort of beat their chest and claim to be strong men nowadays are actually cowards? Well, it's important, important to, to remember that uh, Hitler was different from the real person Hitler who was just this like weedy little artist who wasn't the <laughs> Aryan strong man at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, this preening little failed artist, you know, who was very upset about his, uh, his, his um, lack of achievement and, and standing in the world. Uh, so he's going to – I'm going to show them, you know? Uh, anyway. Uh, so yeah, you've been very giving of your time. I really appreciate this chat. I mean, there's so much more that we can talk about. People should, uh, be talking to their elected representatives. I would love to see, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the limitations of federalism impose on our state and local politicians, but I do know that for example, you know, you could, uh, craft a certain kind of non-binding statement of disapproval, uh, from the floor of any state legislature. And so I would love to see, a delegate like someone like Virginia State Delegate Lee Carter, who's a DSA member, yeah. put forth a just stand up on the floor of the Virginia <laughs> House of Delegates, this little, you know, podunk uh, legislative body in, in the middle of uh, the former capital of the Confederacy. And I'd love to see him stand up and denounce 
Bolsonaro and make it impossible for people to normalize this kind of development in uh, in Brazil and, and, and to decide, uh, you know, that we are not going to stand up uh, passively while he tries to push that society further on the brink of chaos and uh, barbarism. So, yeah, everybody hit the streets. Um, I think we, we're coming out of an era where protest has been delegitimated by kind of uh, this kind of li- hollow liberal moralism, you might say, which might be a controversial claim, but I stand by it. I mm. think a lot of the protests following Trump's election uh, were very moralistic and didn't have very decisive political trajectories. Uh, but this is not the case for this particular moment. We need to hit the streets. We need to make our dissent uh, very loud and clear. So, uh, yeah, Alex Hockley, thank you so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Everybody check out Al- Alfie Bunga Bunga. And Alex, you stay safe there in Sao Paulo. Uh, we genuinely hope that you know we won't see a situation in the coming years where your safety is in jeopardy. But uh, thanks for joining us. Cheers, man. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this week's Late Show. Thanks again to Alex Hockley for joining us. Just want to make one final funding pitch at the end here for those few of you who are still listening. As I mentioned at the outset of this episode, we are asking people to donate one hour's worth of their wage this month to help keep our operations up and running. We have a lot of high ambitions here at Dead Pundit Society. We see a a, a large gap in the world of principled socialist media, and we want to fill that gap, and we think we can do it. We've got a great team assembled around us. We just need the resources to be able to pull it off. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and try to donate as much as you can. I know it's tough times out there, but one hour's wage per week should be just enough to keep us up and running and uh, feeding the masses with that good socialist politics. So, all right. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother... Yeah.